Well, this morning, it's our privilege to turn to the Word of God and to look at it. And we're in that wonderful section on work in Ephesians chapter 6. So turn there, if you will, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll look to the Word of God on work. Leland Reichend, I uh, mentioned him last week, he wrote a book called Redeeming the Time, A Christian Approach to Work and Leisure. And in this book by Leland Riken, he, uh, he cited a trend. I don't know if you've heard this one, but there was a, a trend on the secular scene, and it was actually an assault on those who work, or particularly an assault on the work ethic, and it is called the Protestant ethic, and the attack comes from whom he identifies as leisure theorist, um, and uh, their desire on this Protestant pro- ethic is this, to escape, quote, from the shackles of the work ethic. In fact, they make this assessment that we are told, quote, that what we need is a non-work ethic. I think some of you might agree with that, but hold on. Um, He says in this work by these leisure theorists, quote, that we must renounce the false notions of the dignity of work, of the necessity of work, of self-fulfillment through work, and the duty of work. In fact, uh, the leisure theorists go on to say, quote, that society would be happier if the work ethic were either destroyed or reconstructed. And I I thought, yeah, whether we state that, this is a, a philosophy, we certainly at times live that way. I dug up some recent statistics, had somebody do that, that I got some quotes back that the average worker admits to wasting three hours per an eight-hour workday. That's significant, isn't it? That the average worker in his or her week spends 18 hours a week surfing the web during work hours. Staggering, is it not? In fact, the cost, and those of you who are bosses and owners and supervisors and managers know this, the cost, at least in one estimate, is that in the United States, $759 billion are lost in salary cost for employees that waste time. $759 billion. In fact, 77% of workers use Facebook during work hours. I was shocked, and I hope I'm not wasting anybody's time here, that fantasy football cost employers $10 billion a season in lost productivity. Shocking. Often, less than 60% of the day is spent on being productive 
it for those who work. But beloved, you know that according to the word of God, your work ethic is not just a responsibility before God, it is, but it's really an expression of your spiritual maturity. Let's look to Ephesians chapter 6. Let me read the text for you in verses 5 through 9. And we come to God's word to those who work part 2. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he is both their master and yours in, is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There is God's word to those who work. And just for a moment, just a brief moment, the context, as you well remember, is it begins in Ephesians 4.1, therefore I beseech you as a prisoner of the Lord, Paul said, to walk worthy. And he said that that worthy walk coming off the glorifying of God is set apart through unity. And then he talked about the elements of that unity in terms of our walk in chapter 4. He told us at the end of 4 to be an imitator of God. He told us in chapter 5 to walk in love as Christ loves the church. He told us in 5.15 to walk in wisdom. And then he told us in 5.18 that we need to be filled with the Spirit. So all that he's going to say here is given in light of that context. That filling of the Spirit, you remember, moves into 521 on mutual submission. In other words, there is a mutual submission that we're to have that is the byproduct of the filling of the Spirit. And then that mutual submission in 521 demonstrated itself in a series of relationships. The first was the husband and wife relationship. He gave a command to be mutually submissive to the wives. He gave a command to the husbands that they're to love their wife like Christ loved the church. Then he came and began to instruct children. He told them that they're to obey their parents and the Lord. And then he told parents, if you will, to walk forward and not provoke their children. So at a submission, he speaks of this relationship both in the home, he speaks of the relationship of parents and children, and now he uses this third relationship here between servants and masters. Now, I mentioned last week that there are two commands that are given They become, if you will, the governor through the text. I always want to let the author drive that. And it's not hard here. There's two commands. He gives a command to slaves. Sometimes it's called servants. He tells a servant or an employee what to do. Then secondly, he'll give a command in verse 9 to the masters. 
And so I could say, if the shoe fits, wear it. If you work, then you're going to see your responsibility as a servant. If you're an owner, if you're a supervisor, if you're a boss, he's going to give a very clear command to you in the position that God finds yourself in. And so if you're new to Grace Church, really the only thing that we want to do here is expose the teaching of the Word of God because we want to live obedient to that. So there's two commands, and then he attaches some motivations and reasons for the commands, as you'll see. So he addresses here in this third component the importance between slaves and masters, and then by way of application, the importance that is to all workers and employees And then that command to bosses, and then he gives their individual responsibilities to each other. Let's just dive into the text and just a brief reminder to you on this first command. This first command, it's there in 6.5. Slaves, servants, sometimes bondservants. Here's the command, here's the leading verb. Obey, Paul says here, your earthly masters. In other words, obey those, sometimes the translation says to those who are masters, if you will, in the flesh. In other words, you're on earth, but he recognizes kind of someone's authority over you. And you're not to be disobedient, you're not to demand your rights, you're not to, you know, create havoc in the workplace. You, by the word of God, by the spirit of God, If you're a worker, have been given a very specific command, you're to obey your boss. I'll put it that way. You're to obey your supervisor. You're to obey the one who gives oversight to you. Now, I just remind you again that that word for obey is in the present tense. This is a continual obedience, if you will, obviously, except for sin, But we said that the word there, here, in 6.5 is the same word in 6.1. Children were to obey their parents. And that word obey is hupokuo. And it means to be able to listen to and get under a child to a parent. And here's the same command to you. Present tense. You are to listen to and place yourself under the one, that man or that woman who is giving you oversight. It means to follow is what the word means. It means to be subject to. So just as a child was to obey immediately and completely and with a happy heart, I would think there's a similar refrain here to a worker to submit immediately and obediently and with a cheerful heart. Now, the question would come, maybe you're asking, okay, that's broad, obey. Can you give me some particulars of that? And my answer was, and is, Paul does. What he does here down through verse 8 is he gives four distinguishing marks of how you can carry out that command to obey the one who is giving you oversight. Number one, and we left off here, there's an attitude of respect. An attitude of respect. Look again, it says in 6.5, obey your masters with fear and trembling. In other words, there is a respect for authority. 
just as a wife, if you will, steps over, steps underneath her husband because the husband is the head and should be acting like Christ. And just as children are to get under and listen to their parents, you, if you're a worker, have been encouraged with an attitude of respect to respect the authority that God has placed into your life. And here he mentions this ideal of fear and trembling, the ideal of even quivering. And I don't think he's talking about quivering before your boss. I think he's talking about fear and trembling we mentioned before God. In other words, he's placed you in work where you go tonight or where you go all week. In other words, there is an attitude of respect. We don't care what the culture says. We don't care what, you know, somebody might say to establish your rights. I'm not reading that. He gives a very curt, sharp, clear command that you are to, with an attitude of respect, live out your work hours before God just as you live out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul told Timothy this, here's the heartbeat, let all who are under a yoke as a, does it say it there on the next slide, they're under the yoke as a bondservant, sometimes it's just slave, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's the attitude there. Why? So that the name of God, there's something larger just than you and your supervisor, purpose clause, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And so managers and supervisors and bosses should be respected even if you think they do not deserve it. I think it would be a little bit like the soldier who says, can you finish the statement, you salute the rank, not the what? The person. You're saluting the rank, not the person. I doubt, you know, my son is a captain in the army at this point as a surgeon, and he'll be saluted. They might not know him as he walks by, but they're going to salute because they're saluting the rank not the person. And here, that's just military. You are under the yoke as a bondservant to regard your masters as worthy of all honor. And then secondly, not just an attitude of respect, but a heart of integrity. It says, in the sincerity of your heart. We spoke on this last week. I won't go through it, but it's to be without wax, that there's no flaws detected. You are operating as a man or a woman, as a student in your summer job without wax, with integrity, if you will, a heart of integrity. You are single-minded is the thought in your passion. Now, he goes on, and this is where we're picking up. Look at verse 6. He says, not by way of eye service. In other words, you are working as somebody who's part of the Lord's kingdom. You're working not with eye service. You're not making a superficial showing at work to be seen. In other words, you're working with his eye upon you. You work for the Lord. We'll say more about that. I was thinking uh, this week, it popped into my mind when I was playing college basketball to get into the gymnasium at opening day, I don't know, it was sometime in October, I didn't didn't think it was that hard, he had to run a six minute mile. 
but you had to run a six-minute mile up and down these hills to get into the gym door. And you, you may have been recruited and everything, but if you could run a six-minute mile. So, I mean, I, we're all working out in the summer to be able to get in the gym and start the first day. And I remember when we were running that mile up and down the hills, it all started great. Everybody's running together. You got to get off to a quick start. It's a fairly decent mile to get in shape. But I noticed about around the first lap as all the coaches lost eyesight of, I don't know, 30 basketball players. Um, I'm just running. I'm running up hills. And as I noticed, I'm looking as we got to the top berm that there were guys on my basketball team cutting through that part of the mountain to end up down on the other side of the mountain and skipping a whole uphill battle. I mean, and I thought, you say, well, what did I do? Well, I just took off. No, I didn't. I, uh, I kept on the track, but I thought, you know, I, I don't think we said anything. I, I think we made it. I made it. But I thought, listen, you're not running. You're not on an athletic team only when the coach's eye is upon you. You're running, you're living with this type of integrity because you're not there by way of eye service to be seen. If you're there only by eye service, look down, look what he said you are. He said there, not by way of eye service, comma, I like this phrase, as people pleasers. In other words, you're working students this summer, not because your boss is watching over you. You're working not by way of eye service. You're not working to only please your boss or your manager. You're working with integrity in their presence as well as their absence. In fact, a believer's goal is to please the Lord at work, Ephesians 5.10. In other words, you, I, are to serve without hypocrisy. You are to not be a people pleaser. You and I are to be a Christ pleaser. And so you're serving with a heart of integrity. I think this scripture will come up on the screen. I love this one. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians 3.23, work, I like this phrase, heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is what makes us as believers so fundamentally different. You're not working for a paycheck. You're not working for kudos, although those are both helpful. You are working and you are going in because your one desire is to please the Lord. So Paul says, carry out work here and your obedience with respect and integrity. Maybe I could say it this way to some of you who are younger. That means you're on time. That means you complete the job, whatever they've given you. That means that you and I don't waste company time. That means you shouldn't waste company money. It means that you would not cheat from your employee, right? I mean, if you're working with integrity, if you're going to hold the pot up, as I mentioned last week, and the pots that were fake and the cracks were filled in with wax but held up to the light, you could see that it was a piece of fraud. You and I are called to work with integrity. You're not going to cheat. You're not going to steal. You're not going to become divisive. You're not going to run your boss down, if you will, at the water cooler. 
You're not going to spend your time on fantasy football, okay? You're not going to spend your time on Facebook. And listen, I'm just trying to encourage you. Why? Because you're working with an attitude of respect and you're working with a heart of integrity. You're doing excellent work for the Lord. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. It just popped into my mind this week. I was laughing at it a little bit. Obviously, Patty and I had the privilege to raise seven children, five girls, and two boys. But I remember I came home one day, and I asked Johnny to cut the grass. And, and you know, he, he, and so he cut it, and uh, I got home, and I pulled into the driveway, and there was like uh, salamander lines all over the grass, I thought, that's not the way you cut the grass. It just, there was no rhyme to it. It looked like a butched haircut where you got a big piece left somewhere because the barber didn't. And I came out and I said, Johnny, your job's not done. I said, you cut the grass. He said, I cut the grass, Dad. I, I said, well, no, but you didn't cut it how I wanted it to be cut. And I said, I want you to get back out there. And I said, I want you to put lines in the grass. I want you to go up one row then put your wheels on the line and come back the next row. Now you think I'm being mean. I'm not being mean. I just think if you're going to cut the grass, cut the grass to the glory of God and do a good job at whatever you're doing. And I asked, I told Johnny, and he wasn't too happy. It was probably 105 that day. And I made him uh, get out there and recut the grass so that he would learn how to do it right because I realized he wouldn't have me as a dad one day. He'd have a boss and he needed to do it correctly. He needed to do it accurately. You say, how old was Johnny at that time? Well, he was two, but I, no, he wasn't. He was probably 11 or 12, but I was giving him a little bit of a, 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 an idea that you work under the glory of God. If you're going to do something, do it under the glory of God. If you're going to go to school, do your school under the glory of God. If you're going to work, work to the glory of God. And what you do, you ought to do excellence. Excellence. In fact, look at the phrase in verse 5. He goes back and says this in 6.5. Here's the principle where he says, uh, with a sincere heart, 6.5, and then it says, as you would Christ. As you would Christ. In other words, you belong to a far greater authority than just me or an earthly master. And you certainly desire, should, to honor any human boss. But actually, you belong to the greatest Lord, the greatest master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And your work and my work ought to be reflected with excellence, right? I like how Stott put it. Listen, he said, is it possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it? I like that. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest? Is it possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, accountants to audit the books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ? That's good. I don't know how you look at work, but this is, Paul is giving you something here. Here's how you obey and you obey with a, a, an attitude of respect, with a heart 
of integrity, if you will. And I don't care if you're on the athletic field. I don't care if you're at home. I don't care if you're at school. You're laboring as unto the Lord to the best of your abilities. And that's going to be varied amongst each of your children. But excellence is doing that for Christ. But there's a third distinguishing mark. Not just an attitude of respect, a heart of integrity. Here, thirdly, the role of a servant. Look again at verse 6. It says there, not as people pleasers, but as, watch this, servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so I've just titled it here, the third distinguishing mark is the role as a servant. You are servants of Christ. Maybe if you're using another translation, it would actually say that we are slaves of Christ, that we are bondservants of Christ. Certainly, you're not serving your earthly master in the total, you know, you obey him, but really what you're doing, your eye now, your heart, your mind is going to you as a, I'll say it this way, as a slave of Christ. In fact, Paul said it this way in Galatians 1.10, am I seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I still striving, he said, or trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant or douloi, a slave of Christ. I don't have the time to take you into all the places that speak of our role in Christ as a servant, as a slave of Christ. You say, well, what does a slave of Christ do? Look at verse 6 again. Here it is. As a servant of Christ, fascinating phrase, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, sometimes that will is obeying your boss, following his dictates. But here you're doing the will of God and you're offering obedience, if you will, but you're doing it from the heart. Doing, that word there is what we call a present participle. It just means keep doing. It means keep practicing. A servant keeps doing, and what is he doing? Well, he's obeying, but here, he's obeying the will of God. He, he's, God wants you, here's the key command, to obey those who are earthly masters. In fact, I like the text in 1 Peter 4, I believe it's 2, to live the rest of their lives for the will of God. If you're a believer... And many of you are. You're living, you're working here to the, for the rest of your lives for the will of God. And you're doing this not just robotically. You know, I just punch in and I'm just, I'm a robot, I'm on the line. No, no, no. He says here, you're doing it from the heart. We say, what does that mean? It means with all your heart, your inner motivation is not extrinsically motivated to please the one that you're working for. You're motivated on an intrinsic motivation to please the Lord, like it says in Ephesians 5.17. You say, well, I'm to do that from the heart. Well, what do I do? Look at verse 7. He says to those of you who work, rendering service with a good will 
as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, you're rendering a service. I like that. If you're working, if you're receiving a paycheck, then you're certainly rendering a service. But you're doing it as to the Lord. You're not there. It's not wrong completely, you understand. But you're not seeking to be seen by the boss. You're not just punching in and you just can't wait till the shift is over. Nor are you, you're rendering service, you're not competing. You're not jockeying for the position. You're not jockeying for the promotion. You're therefore rendering service. You're not complaining. You're not whining, if you will. You're not gossiping. No, here under the role of a service, servant, you're rendering service. Now, now look at the next phrase in verse 7. Put your nose back in the text there. It says, it's a unique phrase. I just spent some time meditating on it this week. With a good will. With a, I'm reading from the ESV. With a good will. <laughs> what is that? Well, I can tell you what it is. From Paul to you in the in the language, because you're like, with goodwill, it just means you're rendering service, I'll make it real simple, with a good attitude. That's what it means. Literally, you're rendering service, how about this, with enthusiasm, literally, okay? But I, I think it goes beyond that. It's more than that. You're faithful to render that service and you have your boss's interest in your mind and heart as much as you do his eye upon you. I mean, this is a high standard. Now, listen, we got people wasting time all over. But I promise you, if you go in, you will be noticed if you just go in there and work with enthusiasm. You say, well, Scott, sometimes I just get overlooked. I am working with enthusiasm, and they miss it. They catch the guy who's jockeying for position, who's competing for the... I, I understand that. This is not an easy concept, but not you. Because listen, you're working as you would Christ. You're rendering service, and you're doing that with a goodwill, with enthusiasm, okay? You're not just receiving a paycheck, I call this, you're not being, I, I should probably find a guy's name for this. You're not being a Debbie Downer at work. I should, I should I, help me with a guy's name. I just, did you ever hear that phrase? Debbie Downer works with an Eeyore attitude. Oh, I can't believe he's asking this. And, you know, and you can just go in and whine and mope. And you could all of a sudden lose this thought here of rendering service with a good attitude as unto the Lord. Believers are to obey orders of a boss and doing so with a positive attitude. And sometimes this is hard at times. But you and I need to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not ever forget when we were in John 13 that while they're talking about who is the greatest among them, he rises from that meal and dons the apron of a slave. And while they're talking and competing and jockeying and the mother is asking if my sons could sit on the right and left, 
He's putting on shocking the apron of a slave and he's stooping down to wash the disciples, what? Feet. Don't forget him. Don't forget the one who took on the form of a servant, bondservant, same word, humbled himself and became obedient even to the extent of death. Yes, death on a, what? A cross. So here you're rendering service with a, with a good heart. And, you know, maybe I should just stop and say, but Scott, if you only knew my boss, if you only knew how he talked, if you only knew how she talked, she gives, he gives ridiculous commands. Well, listen, walk in the spirit. You're mutually submissive to one another. You do what you can with all your strength and with all your might. Because look at verse 7b. You're rendering service with a good will. And then it says, as to the Lord and not to men. You remember, you don't work for him or her. In fact, if you go back in the text, you can underline these if you want. Look at verse 19, 519. Remember this? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to who? To the Lord with all your heart. When you come in and sing, oh, we want to hear each other. We get that. But ultimately, you're singing to the Lord and making melody to the Lord. Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. You're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is to be done for Him. Look at 521. It says submitting to one another out of the reverence of Christ or out of the fear for Christ you're submitting. He goes on that a husband is to love his wife just as Christ loved the church. Children are to obey in the Lord. It's the same thing, right? And then here, parents are to bring those children up in the Lord. And now servants are to obey their masters in the Lord. You say, Pastor, that's really, really hard. How do I do that? Thanks for asking. Look at verse 8, okay? Here's what you've got to know, okay? Is that whatever good... This is shocking. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So there's respect, there's integrity, there's the role of a servant. And number four, here's how you can obey your earthly master, is the fourth distinguishing mark is the giver of the Lord. Of, the giver is the Lord, if you will. The giver of the reward is the Lord. In other words, he's going to give back. It's a shocking statement. I trust you, you recognize this, knowing that whatever good anyone does, anyone, from the tiniest thing to the largest thing will receive a reward from the Lord. In other words, you may face hard days. You may do thankless tasks. But the Lord sees them all from the smallest to the largest and will reward your obedience if it's distinguished by these marks. Now you might ask, what do you mean reward? He's obviously talking in the future here, is he not? You have earthly masters, but you also have a heavenly master. And your heavenly master, Kyrios, is the Lord, L-O-R-D. So even though you're working for an earthly Lord, it's a play on words, you have a 
heavenly Lord, and the reference there is to the person of Christ, he's talking about the Bema Seat Judgment. Some of you might say, whoa, what is the Bema Seat Judgment? Let me show you. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there. Just a brief word on this, but it is worthy of more time. But here, you remember that great text about our heavenly dwelling. I was thinking about some of you during our songs this morning. You've lost loved ones in this year, this last two years, and they're with the Lord. But he says there, do you remember that in 2 Corinthians 5.9? Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to what? To please him, to honor him, to serve him, to work for him, to play for him. It says, look at why, 510, for we must all appear, you see this phrase, before the judgment seat of Christ. What's that? You think uh, there's no condemnation. Oh, I know there's no condemnation, and you know there's no condemnation, but you will stand before the Lord. And you will give an account for your life. You will give an account for the stewardship allotted to you. You will give an account for the talents that have been given to you. So I will? Yes, of course, because it's right here. I'm just saying you're going to appear not before the great white throne judgment. No, that's the throne for unbelievers. But you and I will stand before the Lord and you'll appear before that judgment seat. Why? Look at this, the text again. It says there, so that each one may, here's that concept of Ephesians, receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Now, Paul's going to say whether good or evil. You're going to give an account of your stewardship. And I don't mean to create fear, okay? We, and uh, there's much on this, but this is the Bema seat, you will be asked for what you've done. And if you had five talents, I'm hoping you make 10. If you've been given two in Matthew 25, I'm hoping you make two more for four. But the master who was, the, the servant who was given one said, Lord, I thought you were a long time in coming back. So I hid it in the ground. Do you remember in Matthew 25, the Lord said, listen, you should have at least put it in the bank, cast out this wicked and it says this, lazy slave, slothful, you know, slave, if you will. So here he just says, you're going to receive what is, you say, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, go over to 1 Corinthians just for a moment. I mean, and he's using this as incentive for us. I'm not trying to be harsh here. But Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 3.8. Turn there in your scripture. It's a great section because there's divisions in the church. Then he says in 3.8 of 1 Corinthians that he who plants and he who waters are one, okay? And each, here it is, underline this, will receive his wages according to his labor. So what does that mean, Scott? You'll stand before the Lord. You say there's no more tears. no. There is no more tears, but it actually says he'll wipe away every what? tear. You're rendering service unto the Lord right now, and so am I. In other words, you'll stand before him, not to judge you, great white throne, all your sins have been judged in Christ, but you will give an account, 
And there it says in three that he who plants, whether it's Paul or Apollos, he who waters are one, each one will receive his rages according to his labor. So this is what he's talking about here. Look at 3.14, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 3.14. If the work that anyone has built on their foundation survives, underline it, he will receive a what? A reward. Unbelievable. Look at chapter 4. Just turn the page. Chapter 4, verse 5. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, Paul speaking, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of, of the heart. Now watch this. Then each one, each of us, will receive his commendation from God. You say, what's the point? Well, some of your deeds will never be recognized ever by your earthly master, but all your deeds are fully recognized by the master for whom it really matters. Amen? So you serve him. You walk with him. You're obedient to him. In fact, look at the last phrase there. Go back to Ephesians. It's interesting, and I think it just leads into the next, where he says at the end of verse 8, whether he is slave or free. In other words, this reward that he's addressing here comes to those who are slave or free. They will be rewarded by the Lord. See, this type of reward helps prevent resentment towards a boss. You may be overlooked. I know people who are overlooked. I know people who proverbially got stabbed in the back. I know people who have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars because someone swindled from them or someone out, you know, sought out, kind of thought them on a contract. And, but listen, you are working, if you will, with an attitude of respect with a heart of integrity, in the role of a servant, knowing that you will receive a reward from the Lord. Maybe you've heard about the elderly missionary couple who was returning home on a ship a long time ago. And many years after sacrificial service, giving themselves and really their whole life in service to Africa. And on the same ship was a man by the name of Teddy Roosevelt, and who had just completed not any kind of missionary work. He completed a highly successful big game hunt. And as the ship docked in the New York Harbor, thousands of well-wishers and dozens of reporters lined the pier to welcome Roosevelt home. But not a single person was there to welcome the missionaries. As the couple rode to the hotel in a taxi, The man complained to his wife, it just doesn't seem right. We give 40 years of our lives to Jesus Christ to win souls in Africa, and nobody knows or cares when we return, yet the president goes over there for a few weeks to kill some animals, and the whole world takes notice. But as they prayed together that night before retiring, the Lord encouraged them with this thought. Do you know why you haven't received your reward yet? My children, he said, it is because you are not home yet. Listen, you may never get the stuff and the kudos and the accolades. And, you know, I keep thinking about, it's it's all over the news, is 
Tom Brady. You know, he's won so many championships and he's worth so much money, but he's going through a difficult divorce with his wife. Listen, I just know that we have a master in heaven that even if you don't walk away with Lombardi trophies and rings, you have a master in heaven who sees and knows. So here it is. A spirit-filled employee, a submissive believer, approaches work with respect, with integrity, as in the role of service, knowing the giver of the reward. But there's a final thought here, and don't think it's just last, but it is. It's verse 9. And I think it's profound. He spends five, six, seven, and eight on employees. And then he says this, masters, bosses, supervisors, managers, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. What a statement here. Say, what is this? It's called the managerial, okay, golden rule. In other words, what I've just said and what Paul's just said, he doesn't make light of. He says, supervisors, treat your employees in the same way that you want to be treated. We say, what do you mean by that? Listen, if you want respect as a man or woman in a leadership position, then show them respect. If you desire for them to live with integrity, then you live with integrity. Don't have a double life. If you want them to serve you, then you need to consider how you can serve them is the thought. If you know that they're working for a reward that is future based in heaven, then you need to remember that you'll also stand before the Lord. And you'll also give an account for how you treated those in the workplace. Okay? Now, now look, he says something, two specific directives are given. I mean, I suppose he could have said more, but here it is. He said, number one, stop threatening, okay? In other words, if you are an owner, a boss, a supervisor, a manager, do not abuse your authority by demeaning, by threatening. You say, well, what is he asking for here on the threatening? Well, he doesn't say, okay? I I do know that Paul in Acts 9 was breathing out threats towards the church before the Lord converted him. And I just could see Paul as a madman, if you will, dragging the believers from city to city and putting them in jail, and he's threatening them. And I'm sure that became part of his abuse. But I would think threatening here may be some form of violence, at least my message last week in the history things that I stated, could be some form of sexual exploitation, Maybe it comes through some form of intimidation. Maybe you're going to tell them, I'm going to sell you off. Maybe, maybe. Or I'm going to sever you from your family and you'll never see them again. I don't know. He says, masters, if you're following Christ, 
Here's the managerial golden rule. Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants, again, slaves, justly. And it says, fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. You say, why does he say this to the masters? Well, there's a second directive. Not only stop threatening, but look at verse 9 again. It says that he is both their master and yours is in heaven. In other words, if you're a believing boss, you have one whom you answer to. You have one to whom you're submitted to. You say, well, I'm, I'm submitted to the stockholders. Or, Scott, I own, the own my own company. I submit to no one. Well, n- not really. You may on an earthly level submit to no one. But their master and yours, yours, he says, is in heaven. And he says this here. Do you see that phrase? There's no partiality with him. And I think you know what that means. It, it just means that there's no favoritism with him, with God. The, the idea, here's how I, I remember this phrase. This is what it means. It means that God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not literally, and I could share the, the Hebrew term with you and I won't, the Greek term. It just means that he doesn't receive by the face. In other words, he's no respecter of persons. That in the eyes of the Lord, no one is more important than another. I think what he's saying to the masters on an earthly level, you rule, you domineer, you at times dominate, at times you might threaten. He says, remember the managerial golden rule, if you will, and stop threatening. And remember that there is no favoritism with him. There's no partiality with him. Which is why racism is so gross, so anti-God, and you know that, and I've shared that with you, as though you'd make a difference and a distinction on the base of someone's skin color or race or whatever. Here's the one scripture, there's plenty of them, but Deuteronomy 10, the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not, there it is, partial. God doesn't show any partiality. He takes no bribe. He executes judgment. He does that for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In fact, it says in Colossians 3.25, look at it later, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. I just... With our Lord, he judges all, and he does so without partiality and without favoritism. Sometimes the CFO or the CEO says that the buck stops with what? Me? No, no not really. Not at all. You think it does, but how you treat people and how you treat those who work with you The buck doesn't stop with the CFO or the owner. The buck stops with the Lord. The Roman law, you may be cruel, but in the divine law, you will be judged by the Lord. So there's two commands, one to the worker and one to the boss. And I'm just asking you, okay, are there areas at work, I don't know that, that you need to repent of? 
Are there? We're going to come to the Lord's table. Are there people that you need to apologize to? Is there someone in this place that you need to make restitution with? Because even as I'm speaking, the Spirit of God is at work in your life. Listen, we'll go to the Lord's table. I was thinking just as I was sitting on the front row, we Zoomed Dr. John MacArthur in to our seminary class on Tuesday. And it was a delightful time. You know, you know I, I asked my mom when we met him, and she said, Scott, we got to Grace Church in 1972 in September. So I've known the man for 50 years. And uh, one of our seminary students said, I won't give you his name, but it was quite tender. He said, Dr. MacArthur, he said, I don't even know you. I've not met you, but I feel like I love you. I won't say his name, but I, unbelievable that Jack Barley said that, you know. Um, he, he, and I thought, I get it. He's been listening to him and some of the number of the guys. But I just, the thing that struck me there was at the very end of the Zoom call, they said, how do we conduct ourselves with all these issues facing us as pastors? And he said, you do so with great patience and instruction. Great patience and instruction. And so for a man that is 83, who you would think is at the top of his game, at least for the years of service, encouraging our students to love their flock and to do so with great patience and instructions. In other words, we've been watching the fall of men in ministry all around the globe who are just bullying their flock and bullying their staff. It was a great reminder.